They shift him from right to left. Play action to that side. Rolling right, looking. Fires in the end zone. Got a man. Oh, touchdown. That's a tight end from 15 yards out. Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by ESPN play-by-play commentator Joe Tessitore and former University of Texas football player and athletic director Mike Perrin. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoy today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the bowl season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at bowlseason. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. For the better part of the last two decades, our first guest has been among the premier broadcasters for ESPN and ABC's coverage of college football, as well as the voice of Monday Night Football and veteran blow-by-blow ringside commentator for top-ranked boxing. Recognized as one of the top game callers in sports, he's been widely praised for his versatility, his distinctive voice, and for the joyous enthusiasm in his calls. Please welcome to the show ESPN play-by-play commentator Joe Tessitore. Joe, thanks for joining us. Well, Nick, always a pleasure to be with you. Obviously, I've known you for years, but it's and now after that great introduction, I'm sitting here very jealous of your background compared to mine. I'm also the master of really bland sheetrock, as you can see here. Well, you 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 bring any set to life with your personality, Joe. We know that, so we're not we're not worried. ESPN. Well, it's great to be with you, man. <laughs> always. ESPN Saturday Night Primetime and Monday Night Football are the gigs you're probably most well known for. Sure. I, I, I might uh, say I, I, you know, I there are some other things you've done that are uh, uh, I enjoyed watching. But can you talk about the difference in the college game and the professional game from your seat in the press oh, box? You know, I don't even think it's close. And I've been blessed to um, you know be at the highest level of both. It was a thrill my years on Monday Night Football and doing NFL playoff games and Pro Bowls and everything related to that. Um, but college football to me is like a Leroy Neiman painting. Um, it's rich with texture, with colors, with vibrancy. And the NFL is obviously the highest level of the sport in terms of what you're seeing with the play on the field, the execution, the athlete. But um, college football to me is the only thing we truly have in American sports that rivals and is comparable to the tribal religious fervor of European sport, of of Premier League soccer, of Serie A football in in uh, you know my family's native country, of La Liga, of Bundesliga, where you identify with a team um, not because of just a rooting interest of where you live, but because that is your identity. And you know I think and, and not obviously I've probably done more SEC games than any conference. And I love all the conferences I've covered, but that that phrase that it just means more, I think it's not just applicable to the SEC. I think it's applicable to the entire sport. And there's a texture and a richness of pageantry and color and tradition and this tribalism in college football that I don't think you find in any other American sport. And because of that, I since the time I was a child, I have always found it extremely relatable and with a magnetism that has drawn me in that... Um, I can't do without my life. Well, well, you know, the season's kicked off. Once again, you're assigned to call one of the bigger games each weekend for ESPN. Sure. Um, as you described uh, better than I could, so much emotion and energy in every game, every stadium on game day. But in week one this year, there was a different kind of emotion. You called yes. Virginia, Tennessee, where Virginia honored the three players who had passed last year. What was it like in that stadium? It, w- it was, um, listen, I, I'm very happy and proud of what the crew did. Um, our director, Jeff Evers, our producer, Scott Matthews, in properly documenting, especially the first 15 minutes of uh, pregame through kick through the opening drive for Virginia of the story of Mike Collins, the player who heroically returned to the scene of the shooting, knowing he was facing danger to help his fallen teammates and was shot himself and survived of returning to the game. And, and Nick, I think we've talked about it briefly in the course of recent years, but my daughter is a student athlete at the University of Virginia. My wife, Rebecca, and I happened to be in Charlottesville on that Sunday because our daughter had and her team 
um, had a match that day that they won. They had a, you know, a, a thrilling win against Columbia earlier that day. And we stuck around for dinner and celebration. And then uh, the men's and women's team was having a get together that night that was within 100 yards of the shooting. So for my family, we spent the next 11 hours uh, gripped in terror and horror, um, locked down. My daughter was barricaded in a bathroom with two other student athletes. Um, Unfortunately, a teammate who was ROTC, who understood active shooter protocols. And that went on for 11 hours until the suspect was secured. So it was very personal for my family. And but our story is not unlike thousands and thousands of those who are part of the Charlottesville community. So for Saturday, that was much more than just playing a football game. That was a culmination of three quarters of a year of a community who is um, dealing with grief, dealing with um, a lot of trauma, a lot of stress um, of um, being being spooked in ways that none of us should be. And there was a healing quality to that because there are very few things that are more galvanizing and communal than the sport of football in our country. And I think we all knew that Virginia was going to have a tough time competing with Tennessee. Tennessee is an amazing football team. But I also think that we knew that Virginia was going to come out with a huge win just by taking the field. And I think if you, if you watch the first 15 minutes of that broadcast, I think that our production crew did a very good job of capturing that. And, and we just, all we wanted to do was to document it properly, but that was very poignant and very heavy. And, and uh, hopefully that was a moment that, that act in some way as just a morsel of healing for that community, Nick. There's, there's no doubt that it did. And, and great job by you. Great job uh, by the crew, as you said. Um, really, really great to watch too, from a, a fan's perspective. Now, you're also known as ESPN's Heisman Trophy expert with your Heismanology segments. What's it like being so close to the process of the most coveted individual award in college athletics? You know, Do you have any so favorite I memory? You, yeah, I will tell you that it, um, in recent years, I've stepped away from that role. But obviously, that was a role that going back 15, 20 years, um, you know, I took great pride in. And I think what we did was, I can remember meeting with some executives and saying, I think we're undercovering the Heisman Trophy. I think the Heisman Trophy needs to be covered as a race week to week to week to week. And if you go back to the early 2000s and mid 2000s, when we started doing Heismanology and polling, and now everybody's doing a poll. Everybody does a Heisman poll. Nobody was doing it back then. And I think there was such an interest in the race for the Heisman Trophy and I think we're, we reflect on that and the decision was made. We're very proud that we were able to do that to the point where now we have the Heisman straw polls and we're able to pull electors week by week and, and frame that race. I have great memories of obviously being on the Heisman Trophy presentation for so many years. Now, in more recent years, top-ranked boxing always holds that Madison Square Garden show on Heisman night. So I'm ringside now getting ready to call four hours of action. So I've stepped away from actually being on the Heisman broadcast to do that. But, you know, great memories through the years of the Tebow years of being there, um, the RG3 years, the Manziel years, um, and all the way through with Derrick Henry and all those years. Um, but that moment of being back in the green room with Chris Fowler and Rinaldi and myself and Kirk, and then, you know, being the guy on the touch screen and breaking it down as soon as the winner is announced and gets a speech and toss them in. All right, let's get to the results. I'm going to show you why and how. Um, it, it, it kind of predates, I think, a lot of what you're seeing on election night now. And that was it was a blast to do that for many years. You mentioned boxing, you know, depending on what sport you're a fan of. Some people may know you as as the boxer. Yeah, sure. Yeah. How did you get into the sport of boxing? What makes it one of your favorite sports to call? Well, I, I'm a lifelong boxing fan. Football and boxing are my two favorite sports. Uh, boxing has is, is been my entire football has to. But boxing very much my entire life. And Nick, I th- you know, I, th- I think because we know each other personally. You know that I'm the son of an Italian immigrant and I and a family that kneeled down at the altar of Rocky Marciano and uh, just taking so much ethnic pride in in a sport that um, that Italian-Americans were so dominant in for so many years. Um, And then growing up where I grew up in the area of New York, which was not far away from Catskill, New York. So being a teenager and a high school guy in the 1980s and being a hardcore boxing fan where we would go to our Friday night fight local shows, just local boxing shows. And a certain 18 year old heavyweight was fighting. So I was at the pro debut 
of Mike Tyson against Hector Mercedes. I was at Tyson's second fight, his third fight, his fourth fight. Mike Tyson's best friend was a guy who went to high school with me. And those were our local fighters. So, um, and then, you know, I had a catastrophic football injury playing prep football. And, and when I came back after multiple surgeries, just getting into a boxing gym and being up on my toes was was a way to get back to sports. And, and so I became obsessed in the gym and did that for um, many years of just training through college and then a few years out of college until one day taking a devastating body shot, being very, very stupid on a day where I was anchoring a six o'clock newscast. And I said, that's enough for me. I don't need to be doing this. Um, so I, I have a passion for it. But I think one of the things I love about boxing so much is that everything else is just a game. That when you step through those three ropes, um, it exposes what a man is. It's one man breaking another man's will. And it's very raw. Um, it's very primal. And there's a reason why all the greatest Hollywood movies of all time that are sports movies, all the Academy Award winning movies, all the most dynamic roles, whether it's Robert De Niro and Raging Bull or Sylvester Stallone and Rocky or any any great movie that relates to sports, typically they are boxing movies. Um, it is like a movie playing out right in front of you. I've been very blessed to do it now for way too long. Um, 25 years of being associated with the sport on TV, literally traveling the world, doing the international pay-per-views, the ESPN pay-per-views, top-ranked boxing, the old Friday night fights with Teddy Atlas, and you know, in recent years, side-by-side -side with Andre Ward and Tim Bradley. So it is a great passion of mine. Um, and and I just find it, I think there are a lot of parallels with football, um, with the exception of one being, the, you know, as I said, a man totally exposed on his own and the ultimate team army sport. But, you know, the dangers, the knowing that at any moment it, it could all end for you is, is something that is is a is is tough to escape. You become addicted to it, Nick. And I, I can't even imagine the personalities you meet. Oh, in man. I mean, it's I've I've traveled the world with everybody from six foot nine Gypsy King Tyson Fury to Manny Pacquiao um, to Floyd Mayweather being constantly angry at me. Um, it, it, unique characters from Don King to Bob Arum, uh, you name it, I've seen it, and you can't believe it. And it happens time and again. And you know, I've been everywhere and back um, around the world with these fascinating characters and. Uh, many become friends. You know, Terrence Bud Crawford, who's now the pound for pound champion of the world, is a, a dear family friend and um, just dynamic characters, men who have overcome great adversity and great odds and, um, you know, are truly when you define champions, uh, fearless champions. Let's let's go back to college football. Sure. There was a moment in a game back in 2020. Boston yeah. College was at Clemson. BC was about to attempt a field goal and the, and the holder unexpectedly <laughs> yes. ran under center appearing like he was going to take the snap right. the defense off sides giving bc yeah. a first down all right no big deal people are probably wondering why why am i describing right. the play big deal yes it might be your most memorable play call of your yeah. career tell our listeners why well it, it was it was my son who lined up playing quarterback on that fourth down so uh my son grew up football obsessed played every position you could possibly play what was a very hard worker went to a um, a school you're familiar with, Choate Rosemary Hall, who when you and I were growing up was not a football power, but all of a sudden has turned into like this football factory. And, you know, he ended up winning four New England prep school championships. And I think by the time he got through every showcase camp was the number nine ranked punter in the country. But he played quarterback and receiver and did everything. So Jeff Halfley, who at the time was the head coach, um, at BC, he was recruited originally by Steve Adazio, who's a dear friend of both of ours. Um, but Jeff was utilizing John as sort of a Swiss Army knife, fourth down quarterback, you know, trick plays and speed option, throwing the ball. And and of course, the one game I'm broadcasting when Clemson is number one in the country on ABC in front of tens of millions of people. That's the moment where John Tessitore decides at fourth and five or less, I've got a green light. And if I see a front that could do it, I'm calling this. So uh, the corner of my eye, and I know, I obviously know my son, like the back of my hand when it comes to who he is as a football player, uh, the corner of my eye, and I'm trying not to even say his name, but I see him make a check call and split the end, the wing out to a, a, a flexed out tight end. 
And I can remember saying, he's not going to please in, in my head while I'm live on ABC. And the next thing I know, there he is. And he runs under center. And now here comes the safety charge, a deep, you know, safe guy charging in. And I say, he's going to get him in that A gap. And he gives the hardest hard count you could ever give. And boom. And then we throw to, you know, we throw in the next play to take now an 11 point lead against Clemson. And I tried to play it cool, Nick. I, I think I think this may be the most endearing thing that people have said to me about the call. I, I just called him Tessator. I just tried to play it cool and not even give attention to the fact that it was my son who just did this. That lasted about five seconds before Greg McElroy interrupted and just, you know, came in and with the, yeah, I'm sure you had to do a lot of prep to get ready for that call. You know, now the, the, um, the follow-up to that story that you'll appreciate, Nick, is, and you know how close I am with my son, um, John and I talk every day, nonstop. You know, we talk football every single day, even, even now that he's off, you know, in his life of working. Um, he didn't tell me one thing that whole week. I did not know what was in the game plan, what he had. We, he didn't discuss what, and he'll tell me on a given week like that. Here's what we got in this week. You know, I got, I got speed option. I've got, you know, muddle look off of extra point with pods. I've got, you know, I've got the option of, shotgun run it or I'm going to pass it out to the wing or to the ends he didn't tell me one thing that week so here he's got Clemson number one in the country I'm broadcasting the game the kid does not give me the heads up at all that if we're fourth and five or less I've got this in so he owes me at some point on that because he caught me off guard he's not going to give you a break he's going to make no, you he's not. <laughs> well before you called football games before you called bowl games um, growing up, I know you loved watching bowl games, but what yes. do you remember the kid, what, what it was like turning on the TV during the holidays and finding a bowl game to watch? It, it was my favorite day of the year. You know, back then everything was boiled down to January 1st. There was some spillover to, you know, some non-traditional January 2nd, but my, my father, um, you know, we would say we have one main TV and then of course the little black and white and another you know, really crappy TV. And three of them were put together on TV trays and antennas and aluminum foil so that we could not miss any of the overlaps of the cotton bowl overlapping a little with rows overlapping. And then, you know, of course, by the time you got tonight, it was all about the orange bowl back then. And so many of them, and, and the sugar bowl, of course, at nighttime. Um, but those January 1st days growing up with my dad were very, very special. And just consuming everything from midday through the final echo um, of the Orange Bowl and Sugar Bowl deep into the night. And, um, you know, I have very, very early mem memories of Orange Bowls of, um, you know, Clemson um, with their national championship. Um, Todd Blackledge and Penn State with their Sugar Bowl, I can remember distinctly um, in, in the early 80s. And then, and as you know, I'm a Boston College family um, and, and so the Flutie years were extremely special for all of us. Um, and, you know, Flutie's, Flutie's Cotton Bowl, um, against Houston was just like, you know, I mean, that was like an all time moment. Um, so that was very special. And then, you know, in high school, I will tell you that, um, Pete Giftopoulos and the interceptions that Penn State had against Vinny Testaverde in the Fiesta Bowl, which, to me, really was the moment in the Fiesta Bowl, as you know, at the time was not the what the Fiesta Bowl became and really was the moment where, OK, things are different in college football. Now, wait a minute. We can we can you know, this bowl, the bowls can work in a way where we can create national championships. And, you know, my dad and I had a love of the of the big bowls uh, as if it was another holiday. You know, there was Christmas Eve in our family and Christmas. And then there was January 1st and, and the day when, you know, what we now know is the New Year's Six, um, when those bowls were being played. So then when I was early in my career in the late 90s, um, my dad and I had one very special moment where my schedule allowed for it, where we could get to South Florida. And we went to go see and we said we felt almost a sense of obligation um, to see Tom Osborne's final game. So we went to the Orange Bowl to see Nebraska against Tennessee, which when you look at it now and you think about what it was, is arguably one of the most 
history rich and filled bowl games of all time um, because that was Peyton Manning's final college game as well. And I can remember where I was seated, what the atmosphere was like, what the game was like, what that day was like. I can remember uh, sitting at the Sheridan Yankee Clipper in Fort Lauderdale early in the day, just at that famous old hotel bar with my dad, watching earlier in the day um, with, with you know, the Michigan Rose Bowl earlier that day and watching all the games and then trying to watch as much as we could right up until the last second where we went over to the Orange Bowl. And that was very special. It was also my father's long been passed away at this point. So it was the last football game I ever went to with my dad. So the last football game I ever was able to spend with my father side by side watching a football game with him was the Orange Bowl. And then the Orange Bowl has become such a big part of my life because I've called so many Orange Bowls at this point. And Eric Palms and that group are like extended family to me. And living in South Florida now, um, I consider the Orange Bowl to me to be my bowl, my home bowl, the bowl that I associate the most with. So it's the final football game I was ever at with my father. It was the final moment Tom Osborne ever coached. It was the final game for Peyton Manning. So I feel very grateful every year when my schedule permits when I'm assigned to the Orange Bowl, which I've been assigned to many, many times, um, to host the luncheon and celebrate all the good that the Orange Bowl does in our community, to be a part of everything that they do, to broadcast the game, um, because that's that's the game that I attach the most to. Tell us a little bit more now about your career calling bowl games. We were talking earlier. I think you said you lost lost count of how many. I did. Yeah, it's a blur, Nick. Any yeah. particular that, that are memorable to you, not just the bigger games, but some of the other bowl games that these yeah, I mean, you know, funny. programs have a chance to, you know, experience? Yeah, I, I, I just said, you know, I should really, Nick's invited me on. I should try to at least jot down it through the years. So I had to go to my computer to even look at which games I've done through the years. I'm forgetting half of them. and I'm still missing a bunch of them. But there are so many memories like, you know, and a lot of the memories, and I think this is a, the other thing about bowl games is, you know, I think this gets lost when you get outside the sphere of being within college football. You know, you're, you and your family have been such a part of the bowl experience for so many years. You understand it. You understand that it's not just the game. It's that entire week of being where you are. It's um, it's getting to know the players, the coaches, the community that you're in, the city that you're in. And, boy, I could, late 80s, uh, late, late 2000s, 2008, 2009, 2007 – I was doing the Emerald Bowl back then, a lot. So I can remember our children waking up for their Christmas mornings in hotel rooms in San Francisco. Because we just said, our kids, when they were growing up, it was like, listen, if these are the bowl games I'm doing, then that's where you're spending two weeks on the road. So for them, you know, Christmas morning was often spent at the Western St. Francis. And you're waking up and you're staying in the same, you're staying in the same hotel with with um, Cal or Miami or, uh, you know, one year we were very blessed. We were staying in the same hotel with Boston College. And so, and that was the year that Mark Herslick, who's our colleague now, um, was courageously batting, battling cancer. So that was a very special week for us to be in the hotel when, when BC played that USC team, which by the way, was Pete Carroll's final game at USC. Also spent a lot of time through the years in Orlando and with the great work that, that that group does in doing both of their bowl games. So spending like, you know, eight days in Orlando and that group and that community became extended family to us. Um, so I don't know if I lost you for a second, I apologize, but being in Orlando for a stretch there. Um, and those were fun games, you know, doing a, did a Florida state Notre Dame game, did a West Virginia uh, NC state game, but you know, I, I did so many of these Orlando games I wrote down through the years. And then, of course, I told you about the Orange Bowl, but um, all over the place. I mean, from and then, of course, you know, for years, I, I done so many of the BCF games and uh, Peach Bowls through the years and um, college football playoff semifinals with Todd Blackledge and the bowl games there and, um, you know, Cotton Bowls through the years. And then I've never been in the booth to call the Rose Bowl. But I've been around a lot of Rose Bowls in doing the pregame show and doing everything. And and even when we've done the alternate broadcasts of of ESPN 3D back in the day or the sidelines or the or the multi-screen broadcast. So I've broadcast every major bowl game, every mid-level game, bowl game, every um, entry level bowl game, 
um, including, I mean, doing everything from even the most recent Jimmy Kimmel bowls of, of infusing network level comedy with a bowl game. So it's been a great ride. It's been a great blessing, but tons of memories through the years. You know, you mentioned uh, the atmosphere in some of those bigger games. You know, the we are we're all big fans of the college football playoff. The expanded playoff is going to bring a new level of excitement. They're 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 going to have the opening round games on campus, and I hear a lot yes. of people talk about what what a great atmosphere it is on campus. You know, obviously we're we're big proponents of continuing to have the playoff be integrated sure. into the bowl system. You know, I I would say that the bowl game atmosphere is truly unique where you have two fan bases in the stands, one set of colors on one side, one set of colors on the other. They're kind of dueling in the stands while the teams are dueling on the field versus a home field where it's, it's lopsided for one side. And maybe the visiting team doesn't think the home field idea was such a good idea. What, what's your position on that? Well, I, so I, I'm, I strongly feel that it can be incorporated, that the bowls, especially the tradition-rich bowls, can be incorporated into the college football playoff because here's the, the comp that I would make. When we watch television that is an annual event, it's almost like going to your grandparents' home and sitting in the crackling leather sofa that you've always known that has a distinct sensory experience of smell and texture and feel and look. And it lets you know it's the holidays. It lets you know that that's Thanksgiving or it lets you know that's Christmas. I would tell you that the Orange Bowl has that, that the Cotton Bowl has that, the Rose Bowl has that feel, the Sugar Bowl has that feel. All the major tradition-rich, big-setting bowls have that feel. There's a familiarity that lets the audience know what they're watching. Not unlike, it almost doesn't matter what match I'm watching at center court at Wimbledon to know I'm supposed to watch this, that this has greater significance. Not unlike it doesn't matter what the Sunday pairing is at Augusta National. I know this is important. I know that this has weight to it. I know what it looks like when I'm watching Pebble Beach. I know what it looks like when I'm watching St. Andrews. And we have a lot of stuff. I know the importance of when I'm watching a pay-per-view fight, and that's Madison Square Garden with a boxing ring, the same ring that Muhammad Ali fought in. So I do think that there's some importance there, that as much as you want to reward a home field, perhaps for the first round, I think that when you get to a certain level of the playoff, there definitely is the ability to have it folded into the bowl system. And I would like that because of what I just described. There's a weightiness to these bowls. There's tradition to these bowls. But listen, at the end of the day, the reason any of this is happening is because of TV money. Is because of money coming in the front door. So if we want to think like TV producers and we want to think as the bulls, as characters that we've known and TV sets that we've known, I can make a very strong argument to you that the Rose Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Sugar Bowl um, have a familiarity to it, the Fiesta, the Peach, whatever, you know, that level of January 1st Bowl. They have a familiarity to it the same way watching the big wheel on the price is right of watching Johnny Carson on his sets of watching any of watching the single anchor shot with the clock ticking on 60 minutes that we are conditioned as TV viewers that when you see that, and when you sense that you very much understand what you're watching and that's not disposable in my mind. Thank you for that, Joe. Those are great points. Oh, you're so welcome. There's Feel certainly free to use value. Them. Trademark copyright, Joe Tessitore. There you go, Nick. Well, the, I mean, what you're saying is there's there's value in history and tradition. Of course there is. Familiarity and, and the, the emotion that comes with that. Correct. Yeah. It's built in and you don't have to explain to your audience what they're seeing. So, you know, I would very much welcome, you know, when we get to that stage of one versus eight, two versus seven, so on, so on, that, that that's the case or wherever it becomes the case. If it becomes the case at one, four, you know, two, three, and, and beyond. Last question. Uh, you are, to so many people, their favorite voice to hear on game days. Uh, speaking of familiarity, I think you've you've established that. When you were growing up, though, in the business, we all have mentors and idols. Who did you look sure. up to? And is there anyone today in the business that you particularly admire? Oh, I admire so many today in the business. And, and I don't consider myself to be among the best in my business. I consider myself to somebody who has survived and lasted 
and just worked hard for a long time and it's been present for a long time. And if you work long enough in any industry, people are going to say nice things about you the way you just said. But I don't consider myself to be at the top of the list or the most talented at all. I think we have extraordinarily talented people in the business currently. But stylistically, we all have pref we all have preferences. And as you know, with my personality, and as you can imagine, my preference is not for somebody who's understated or for somebody who lacks passion. Um, so for me, on the spectrum of a style, you know, being a play-by-play -play broadcaster or a live event broadcaster is often like your style in beverage or, or you know, adult beverage or your style in food. And there are some people who, if you ask them what kind of wine they want, they would say, give me the biggest Napa cab you can give me or give us the strongest Bordeaux. I want something that punch has great flavor, huge tasting notes, and I know it's there. I want to smell the earth when I drink that wine. There are some people who drink, you know, really strong tequilas or mezcal straight on the rocks. That would be me. So my, so my flavor is, and who I've looked up to are guys like Brent Musburger and guys like Keith Jackson. And in boxing, guys like, you know, um, Howard Cosell and Jim Lampley. So I, I prefer a broadcaster where I know you're there. I, I can sense your presence. And I want your passion to bleed through as long as it's authentic and not contrived. Um, and as long as it's authentic. And I think sometimes, you know, that's the, that's the thing where I, I assume how people view me is if you know me, you know that the way I speak and who I am is exactly the same guy I am on air. That I, this is just who I am. I have a, a, a high level of energy and intensity to me at all times. So I'm not going to then conform to some cookie cutter standard role of what you think a play-by-play -play or live event broadcaster should sound like when I'm on the air. You, you definitely are authentic, Joe, and we'd love you for that. Joe, thanks so much for joining me on the show. You and I have been uh, uh, really good friends for a long time. You were a great guest. Uh, we know how busy you are on game week during the season. So for you to take the time to join us, we really appreciate it. Nick, Nick, keep up the good work, man. And I know you hear this a lot, but you're, you've been such an asset to the sport for so many years. And and I uh, look forward to listening to all your future podcasts, too. Thank you, Joe. Take care. The forecast for this tax season, it's going to rain refunds. Lots of refunds. File for less and get more with TaxAct, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Our next guest arrived on the University of Texas campus in the fall of 1965 and has been intimately involved with the school ever since. He was a three-year letter winner for the Longhorn football program, playing for legendary coach Daryl Royal. He also received his law degree from Texas in 1971 and over the years has contributed to the success of the school's athletic department in countless ways. Probably no time more so than in 2015 when he served a two-year stint as the Longhorns men's athletics director. He spent the majority of his highly successful professional career practicing law. Please welcome to the show, Mike Perrin. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with you. You know, this is our 45th episode. Can't believe I've done that, that many of them. Uh, in the short three-year history of the Bowl Season Stories podcast, to date we've had guests a wide range of guests that have played college football in six different decades, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 10s, 20s. You, Mike, are our first guest to have played in the 60s. How does that make you feel? Well, I guess I could say what took you so long, but I won't. Uh, it makes me feel special. We had a wonderful time playing uh, football in the 1960s. Uh, the game, of course, has changed so much since then. And uh your area of responsibility with uh, the postseason bowl games has certainly expanded greatly since then. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a special time and thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about those bowl experiences right at the top here. You were part of two bowl games and there weren't nearly as many bowl games back then. So to play in two bowl games, it was a really big deal. Um, you played in the 1966 Blue Bonnet Bowl and the 1968 Cotton Bowl. What were those experiences like for you and your teammates? Well, they really were uh, truly celebrations of successful seasons. In uh, 1966, we uh, 
had a six and four record. We were kind of up and down and uh, came on strong at the end of the year. We were chosen to play in the Blue Bonnet Bowl uh, in Houston, a bowl that's no longer around, but it did have a, a good run for a number of years. Uh, it was a special time. Uh, the, the lore around Austin was that in his first bowl game, which I believe was the Sugar Bowl and after the 57 season, I believe it was, that Coach Royal had worked everybody too hard. They were uh, almost through another set of two-a-days and uh, that the team was uh, flat and uh, tired by the time they got to the game, which, which they lost. We truly celebrated the season. The workouts were lively and brisk, but not a lot of contact uh, in December. Uh, coming to Houston, the uh, alumni down here celebrated uh, uh, with our team, uh, our parents, the band, the administration, uh, a large travel party. Uh, Houston is the home of a, a lot of uh, alumni of the University of Texas, so it was a, a really festive time. Uh, we enjoyed it greatly. We won the game 19 to nothing against Ole Miss. Uh, it was a game that uh, uh, had been predicted to be a little closer than that, but we had a we had, we just had a really good game, and certainly everybody involved enjoyed the celebration. The uh, Cotton Bowl game was actually on January 1 of 1969, following the 1968 season. That was a really tough season for us at the beginning. Uh, we lost the last two games of 1967. Uh, tied the first game of 1968 against U of H 20-20 in Austin and then went out to Texas Tech to play them in Lubbock. We fell behind at halftime, and Coach Royal made a monumental switch at that point. He, uh, Bill Bradley had been our starting quarterback uh, for the previous three seasons, and Coach Royal replaced him at halftime with uh, James Street. James closed the gap against Tech, but couldn't quite uh, get us over there in the fourth quarter. But the next week he started against Oklahoma State, and we won eight in a row regular season games. That was the beginning of the 30-game win streak that the University of Texas had in 68, 69, and 70. So that was really a celebration in, in Dallas. Uh, like Houston, there's a large contingent of UT alumni in the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area. There were parties, uh, not only for the team, but again, the travel party, the administration, our parents, our families. Uh, both of those games were absolute celebrations of successful seasons. We enjoyed them immensely, really did. As a former student athlete, can you shed some light on what your degree means to you and how the student athlete experience guided you throughout the rest of your life? And I, I might ask you to specifically focus on how did those experiences playing football prepare you for your legal career? Uh, great question, Nick, and thank you for asking that. Uh, our uh, program at the time was uh, uh, centered around not only the athletic side of it, but the academic side of it. Coach Royal had been uh, reputedly the first coach in the country to uh, hire a full-time academic advisor, a man named Lan Hewlett, for whom a, an award is uh, uh, given every year by the uh, Athletic uh, Advisors uh, Organization. Uh, we were expected to go to class. Uh, we were expected to make our grades. We were expected to uh, fulfill all academic requirements. Uh, there was a way of uh, making sure you did that. Uh, the, the coaching staff checked up on class attendance and participation. And uh, we had a, a trainer named Frank Medina who uh, would ask you to run the uh, stadium steps at six o'clock in the morning if you missed class. Uh, and I used ask uh, humorously. He was a, uh, quite, a, quite a revered figure, but uh, whatever Frank asked us to do, we did it. He was, <laughs> he was something else. But uh, I, I did miss a class once my freshman year. I ran the steps. I believe there were 66 of them. Uh, and you didn't just run them once. It was about a 10 or 20 trip up and down the stadium. I can't remember the exact number, but uh, it was uh, it made quite an impression on you. So uh, I went to class. Uh, I was fortunate to have uh, good professors all through undergraduate and law school. Uh, I majored in mathematics uh, in my undergraduate studies and then did, did go on to law school. The uh, There were a couple of things about 
the program that uh, did make an impression on me that is there today. Uh, one is accountability. Uh, you know, our uh, games, of course, were filmed. Uh, you got your, in those days, your number on your back. We didn't have uh, our, our names, but uh, you're out there for all the world to see and to be recorded and uh, graded. Uh, uh, we had team meetings on Sunday evenings after the Saturday game, and uh, you found out how you were scored on your performance the day before. Uh, so accountability was a, a big part of it. And uh, certainly that's a, a lesson everybody can uh, profit from, uh, hopefully learned uh, earlier in life than, than later. Particularly for the program that Coach Royal ran, uh, it was a, a hallmark of organization. Uh, scheduling, uh, the practices, the uh, timing of practices, we were trained in periods that uh, ran five to 15 to 20 minutes, uh, punctuated by an air horn on a tower that uh, was in the middle of the practice field. Uh, preparation, you know, to um, participate in most <clears throat> endeavors in life, you don't get to do it just your way. The other side is pushing back, certainly uh, just like in football. Uh, so in the legal career, uh, I knew I had to be organized. Uh, you're going before a uh, panel of strangers that you're trying to convince of a result in uh, whatever length of time the court has set aside for the trial. And uh, uh, you've got to be organized. You uh, need to maximize the effectiveness of your time. And uh, you have to anticipate the pushback you'll get from the other side. Uh, they're not going to just uh, uh, lay down. They're going to fight back just like uh, an opposing team does on the football field. So uh, a lot of strategy uh, analysis has to go into it. Uh, here's what I want to do, but how are they going to push back? Uh, what should I anticipate? Uh, how am I going to respond to that? And usually you had to have several responses and very much like planning a game plan uh, for, for a football game. Uh, it doesn't always go your way and you've got to expect the, uh, uh, unexpected, uh, anticipate and have responses that are prepared for that. Uh, I think that also uh, in that era, uh, you know, many of the coaches had television shows. Uh, Coach Royal had a show on Sunday morning. Uh, it was filmed at eight o'clock Sunday morning and played in various markets later that day. But uh, if you were asked to go uh, be on that show, uh, again, you had to be prepared. Uh, I think preparation is just key to success in any endeavor. And uh, we had preparation in spades. We really did. It was a quite a uh, quite a quite a lesson to learn. Uh, in terms of the uh, what the degree means to me, uh, uh, I've been fortunate to have a successful career in the law. Uh, ironically, I think the mathematics undergrad uh, again teaches you logical thinking and chains of thought. So uh, I've, I've utilized my uh, undergraduate and law degree throughout my career. It means a lot to me. Absolutely. Mike, in 2015, there was an unexpected change at the athletic director position at Texas. And you were asked to fill in on an interim basis. Maybe maybe the first time in your life, you something you weren't prepared for. I don't know. Uh, I don't think you were anticipating that happening. Um, you ended up serving in that role for over two years. Tell us how that opportunity came about, and did you ever imagine that you would become the athletic director at your alma mater? Uh, that's the easy part of that question to answer. No, I never expected to be the athletic director uh, anywhere, but especially at the University of Texas. It just was not on my radar screen. A little background, my wife and I have both been very active uh, uh, alumni ever since we finished uh, our undergraduate degrees in 1969. Uh, through uh, service on the development board, which uh, uh, calls the various uh, academic units together several times a year for uh, meetings with the president and others in the administration. Uh, we have both served on that for many years and are lifetime members of that. So I had met uh, President Greg Finvis through the years. He was formerly a dean of the engineering school and uh, uh, provost of the university before becoming president. The Labor Day weekend of 2015, uh, we were soundly defeated in South Bend by Notre Dame, uh, just a, a, uh, an Irish whipping up there. They really put it on us. Uh, so that following Monday, uh, 
I was about to go outside and grill dinner when my phone rang. Uh, I glanced down and saw a number I didn't recognize, uh, but thought, well, at six o'clock on Labor Day, <laughs> it won't be a solicitor or a political deal. So I answered it, and it turned out to be President Greg Finvis. Uh, after about 30 seconds of uh, pleasantries, he said, I need for you to get up here and be my athletic director. Uh, we chatted a little bit more and uh, hung up. Uh, my wife and I talked about it immediately, and my comment was, I've never gotten a phone call like that in my life. Let's do it. And by then, it was about 6.15 on Monday evening. By Wednesday night at 8.30, I was in Austin uh, meeting with some of his staff to prepare for that transition. Uh, I did have some trepidation. Uh, I wasn't frightened at all by the public aspect of the job since uh, being a trial lawyer, you're uh, in the public eye all the time. Everything you say is uh, taken down by a court reporter, uh, videotaped or otherwise on the record. So I was very, uh, very comfortable with that aspect of it. But uh, there were some parts of the job I had no familiarity with uh, previous to that. Uh, however, uh, a dear friend in the president's office uh, told me that uh, uh, Mike, everything you've done in your life prepared you for this. You'll you'll do just fine. And uh, certainly we had a, a great staff, uh, many of whom I knew from uh, previous activities with the Longhorn Foundation and service on the Women's Athletic Council. So it was a, uh, uh, a great adventure, a lot of fun, uh, extremely rewarding, and uh, uh, especially meaningful to me to come back uh, 50 years to the month after I had enrolled as a freshman at the University of Texas. It was a special time. It really was. What did you learn in that role, Mike, that you couldn't have possibly known without that experience? I think the enormity and responsibility of the job is uh, something that's not really uh, evident to the casual fan who uh, watches games on a weekend or whenever they're scheduled and and doesn't understand all of the various stakeholders who have a, uh, a legitimate interest in, in the athletic department. Uh, I guess the, the, the quickest way to sum it up is at an early speech, I was asked, what is a typical day? And my answer was, there is no typical day. Uh, you, you start off with a schedule that uh, you've reviewed the night before for what you think is going to happen. But throughout the day, issues pop up and things that you thought were going to happen go away. So my executive assistant uh, typically prepared me about about four calendars during the day as as things came up. Um, I think something I really enjoyed uh, that I hadn't realized was going to be uh, so prevalent was the public aspect of the job. Uh, my first day on the job, a friend in the state legislature called and said, "Well, welcome to the second most visible job in the state of Texas. You." You, you may be more visible than the governor at times, but uh, certainly uh, it, it's at least the second most visible job in the state. And by that, I mean the stakeholders, uh, administration, the faculty, the board of regents, uh, the student athletes, uh, their parents, their coaches, their high school coaches, uh, interested alumni, uh, sponsors who uh, participated in our, uh, in our program. Um, it's a, a very demanding but very rewarding job and uh, two of my most favorite days were when we would welcome the incoming freshmen uh, in in August but also uh, at the end of each semester when we recognized our graduating seniors uh, it, it it it's a complete job and having uh, lived through it uh, as a student in the 1960s it really brought home to me the impact that a university, uh, particular professors or coaches, the impact that those can have and will have on your life for the rest of your life. Uh, I loved it. It was uh, some of the most rewarding 27 months of my, of my life. Last question for you, Mike, with the expanded 12-team playoff coming to college football next year, what role do you think bowl season will play in the future? Are those games still important? I'm excited to say I think they are all important. Uh, there are so many talented athletes, and with the transfer portal and all that, people move around. So you've got a uh, 
situation where the competition is fierce for the top spots. Uh, I read where some uh, uh, pundits will say that those games become meaningless if they're not in the uh, mix for the uh, championship, and, and I disagree with that. Uh, certainly, those games uh, that, that do lead to the championship playoff are uh, critical. They're uh, monumental. They'll be well organized, and uh, I know they will be successful. But the individual other bowls around the country play such an impact uh, in their local community, whether it's uh, the charitable impact or the uh, uh, involvement of community volunteers who come together uh, to, to showcase their city, their facilities, uh, their ability to entertain uh, two successful football teams and the accompanying travel party that I mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, our experience. Uh, I, I think those games will continue to be uh, very, very important uh, to the conferences that are affiliated with them, uh, to the universities that are privileged to play in them, and certainly to the surrounding uh, community. Uh, I, I treasure my experiences from uh, a long time ago uh, in those two bowls, and uh, neither one of them led to any sort of national championship. They're, they're just an important part of the fabric of college football, which people in the United States love. Good stuff. Well, Mike, thanks so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate uh, um, you joining us. I appreciate the, the friendship that we have and the mentorship you've given me over the past several years as we were building, uh, building the bowl season brand together and promoting this great tradition in American sports. So really appreciate everything you do for college football. And thanks for joining us today. Delighted to be with you, Nick. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. If you missed any of our past episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the bowl season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.